0: The O'Ball by Robert McMinn Chapter 12 Friday, the 11th of November Ronnie wanted to be sure to arrive at the office before anyone else on Friday morning, so he caught the early bus. It was dark, cold and wet this morning, and the only people around seemed to be the road sweeper and the guy from the news kiosk who was just opening up when Ronnie walked across the town square. Nibs was nowhere to be seen And Ronnie sat hunched on the steps of Bruch House, waiting for him. In his pocket was the defrosting box of kippers. When Nibs arrived, Ronnie helped him upstairs with the post as usual and then excused himself for a few minutes. He went to the fire exit at the end of the floor and upstairs to floor 7, still wearing his coat. He could be certain that nobody else had arrived yet. None of the internal fire doors were ever locked. Just the one at the bottom that exited to the car park. Ronnie walked over to Oliver Wilson's desk and tried the top drawer. It was locked but Ronnie knew these desk locks were all the same and that the presence of the lock itself was mainly cosmetic. Wilson had left a dirty coffee cup on his desk and Ronnie took the spoon that was sitting in it and used the end of it to twist the lock which turned easily. He then quickly pulled out the drawer removing it completely from the desk And setting it on the floor. He confirmed that Wilson's desk was like his own in having a platform between the top and bottom drawers which would prevent items falling down the back. He pulled the box of kippers from his pocket, ripped it open and pulled out the plastic bag within. With scissors from Wilson's desk he snipped open the bag and slid the kippers out onto the platform in the drawer cavity. He then pushed the drawer back into its slot and locked it again with the spoon. The kippers were still frozen but would probably start to smell as the day wore on. By Monday morning the whole of floor 7 would be aware of them. Ronnie took all his evidence downstairs with him and went across the bridge to the floor four kitchen to throw the kipper box and bag away and make himself a cup of coffee. He was sweating not from the exertion but from the fear of being caught in the act by somebody arriving early on the upper floor. He wiped his face with a tissue from the dispenser, then went back to help Nibs with the post. Once the tension had diminished and his pulse had returned to normal, Ronnie couldn't stop himself smiling as he worked through the morning, alphabetizing his post and making notes on the database about CND rallies, anti war protesters, and anti cruise missile demonstrators. When Mel came down mid morning, he looked up at her with a big grin on his face. What's up? she said. Nothing, lied Ronnie. Friday, I suppose. What news? I was right about tender mercies. I've booked tickets. We need to leave at four and catch a train at 4.21. If we run, we can make it. We can be at the NFT by six for the film. Good, said Ronnie cheerfully. What are you doing for lunch? Nothing. What do you want to do? I thought you went to the pub on Fridays. I fancy getting a coffee from the Italian stall in the market. Someone recommended it to me. I think they sell sandwiches too. Okay, twelve. She left, moving like a cat through the filing racks. Ronnie admired her bum in her tight black trousers as she walked away. At noon, he met her in the lobby and they walked down to the shopping centre together. Why are you so full of yourself today? she asked when she saw him grinning again. I can't tell you, honestly. I wouldn't want to burden you with what I know. It's nothing serious, but you'd rather not know, really, because then you'd feel the need to tell someone else, and before long, everyone would know. She punched him on the upper arm. Tell me. You'll find out next week and suspect it has something to do with me, but you won't be sure which is the way it needs to be. He made to ward off a further punch, which didn't come. She frowned, but didn't pursue it. They walked round to the indoor market and wandered around looking for the Italian store. Neither of them had ever been to it, though it was often discussed. The indoor market had an unfortunate fishy smell, which made Ronnie smile even more. Luckily, the Italian store was on the opposite side to the fishmongers, and sitting on stalls at its counter, the overwhelming aroma was of coffee. Mel ordered a cappuccino and Ronnie an espresso. They shared a large chicken salad sandwich made with a new style of bread, called a ciabatta. "'You can't get coffee like this anywhere else,' said Ronnie. "'I suppose not.' "'You're at the factory all day tomorrow?' she asked. "'Not all day. We're starting after lunch and then we'll go on till we can't stand any more.' "'How much do you need for a record?' "'I think forty minutes is the ideal.' Most of our songs are between three and four minutes, so I think we'll aim for twelve tracks. When they returned to the office, Ronnie learned there was to be another short staff meeting, same place, same time as the week before. He worked for an hour, then joined the others from floor four at two, down in the staff break room. As before, Mooniz spoke first to inform them that Mr Toft wanted to give them an update, and as if to a hidden cue... Toft walked in carrying the same coffee cup he had the previous week. Ronnie wondered about the theatricality of his entrance, given his suspicion that Toft was given the same talk to each floor in turn. Good afternoon, everyone, he said cheerfully. He made eye contact with Ronnie and smiled. This appears to be becoming a weekly event. I wanted to bring you up to date with the progress in finding the mysterious publication, or book, as some people call it. He pronounced it to rhyme with Luke. Well, the good news is we've gleaned a little more information. We intercepted a communication in which someone made reference to page 239 of the book, and a confidential informant, has told us that one of the topics covered in it is a method of persuading small independent organisations to join with a larger cause. I want to thank you all for your diligence in bringing these things to our attention, and I want to emphasise to you that no matter how trivial you think a nugget of information is, it will help us form a bigger picture, so don't hesitate to come forward. Thank you. He walked out. Still carrying his coffee cup, Moonies stood up. Any questions? There were none. Everybody trooped back upstairs. The whole charade had lasted less than ten minutes. Ronnie wondered if there wasn't some better way of communicating a simple fact to the whole office. On the way back up, Dave Cooper gave him a look, and they both walked through to the floor four kitchen for a chat. Just wanted to let you know it's all over. That thing we've been talking about. Finished. Today, it ends, according to my GCHQ contact. Everything reverts to what passes for normal, there's no apocalypse. You will need to get some shopping in for next week. Thank God for that. I didn't want you to worry over the weekend. Ronnie hadn't been that worried, really, because the whole subject had just seemed too huge to take in. He was grateful for the inside information, however, and his already light mood was lifted further. At one minute to four, the fire door banged and Mel appeared moments later at his desk, wearing a black coat over her black trousers and a little more makeup than she'd been wearing at lunch. Quick, she said, we've got about twenty minutes. Ronnie had already packed away for the day, so he grabbed his coat and they both walked briskly from the office. Running down the road, she took his hand. It felt like skipping school they grinned at each other as they cut through the shopping centre and down the back stairs to its multi-storey car park, more expensive than the one Ronnie used. The stairs came out onto the ugly back road behind the shopping centre, which would once have been a busy shopping street, and now consisted in the main of the blank grey walls of two multi-storey car parks facing each other like rival castles, and they crossed the street diagonally to Station Road. They reached the steps to the station in good time to buy their tickets and wait on the platform for their train. ''Well, that was painless,'' said Ronnie, puffing a little from the exercise. Mel looked at him dolefully and sat heavily down on a bench, her cheeks slightly red from the exertion. There was plenty of room on the train when it arrived and they settled down opposite each other. It felt good, Ronnie realised, being with her. It felt right. It felt like they worked well together.'' With Melody, he always felt some kind of dislocation. It wasn't just that she was a bit older than him. He could handle that. But he always sensed that she was two, three steps ahead of him, or looking down from higher ground, aware of a bigger picture he wasn't seeing. It was unsettling. She was beautiful, yes, and interesting, fascinating, even. But she was somehow not part of the world. Mel, on the other hand... Imposed herself on all his senses, she felt closer, in the physical sense, and in the sense that she seemed to be increasingly part of him, in his head as opposed to reading his mind. They'd been sitting in comfortable silence for a while, as the diesel trundled along, when she said, They tried to convince you it's some kind of terrorist manual, something about organising cells and planning civil disobedience but it's nothing of the kind. Ronnie looked at her in alarm, horribly sure he knew what she was talking about, but at the same time deeply confused. You what? he said. That book we keep having meetings about, I'm assuming your floor had one too. Yes, this afternoon. What he was saying today was total bollocks, she said vehemently. Misinformation he said cautiously. He looked around the train carriage, but there appeared to be no one nearby. Yes, but whose misinformation? Because the book is nothing like that, nothing at all. Have you seen it? She leaned forward, slightly. No, I haven't. Should we be talking about this? We're okay here. No bugs on the train, she said happily. Where did you see a copy of the book? Meeting. Your friend was there. I was about to ask you about her, but I didn't want it to seem like I was being jealous or putting pressure on you. I was going to ask about her because I saw her at the meeting, and I realised she's on my side. Our side? Ronnie realised that Mel was assuming that he was part of whatever organisation or movement Melody was involved in. This thought stopped him in his tracks, because he both was and wasn't. He'd borne into it in the sense that he was passing information to Melody, but he had carefully avoided getting involved in what it was all about. When was this meeting? Where? There were too many questions. Ronnie felt he was losing control. Sunday night. When I saw her there, I was surprised not to see you. It was in someone's house or a room out the back, some kind of garage, workshop or shed. It was quite comfortable. There were chairs in there and it was warm. What happened? He spoke, and he read from the book. You weren't allowed to take it away with you, except you do, of course, in the sense that you remember it. And what's in this book? You know. I don't. I don't know as much as you think, he said. She looked alarmed and withdrew into herself. Ronnie tried to think of something else to add, but he couldn't. But you do know her. He knew she was referring to Melody, but had no idea of the significance of that. What was it he was supposed to know if he knew her? He said, Look, don't be afraid. I'm definitely on your side. I just don't know exactly what that means yet. She sat staring at him for a long time as the train clanked and rumbled through Cricklewood. It wasn't a hostile look exactly, but she was certainly confused, as if she was trying to work out why someone would risk association with a group he knew nothing about. It was a good question. Finally, she spoke. Okay. So everyone has somebody else sponsor them into the group. I suppose I can be your sponsor. I thought she'd done it. But, well, it's confusing, that's all. So it's a group you can't just join, you have to be invited. Yes. Yes. Some kind of vetting process goes on. I've actually been going through the process for a while. But last Sunday was my first meeting. I needed something to give me the strength to... You know? Get away from Paul. Among other things. And you'll sponsor me. If you want in. But it's a serious step. Once you're in, there's no going back. What is it, the Mafia? He tried to put a joking tone in his voice... But she answered the question seriously. No, but it is life-changing. It was dark outside now and the train seemed to be moving incredibly slowly through the London boroughs. Ronnie looked at his watch. It was about a quarter to five. He asked himself if he really wanted this, whether he was looking to get involved in something that these people seemed to take so seriously. What was it? Some kind of cult? He felt deeply unsure, but very curious. But was it enough? Sponsor me, he said finally. Tell me about the book. I can't just tell you. I'm not allowed. Ask her about it when you see her. I don't see her that much, you know. I do expect she's busy, but she's very beautiful. I can see why you're interested. Ronnie didn't know what to say to this non sequitur. He knew that any protest to the contrary would be insincere, and the truth was, he didn't know what he was doing. Maybe it did come down to the fact that he was attracted to Melody, but he was just as attracted to Mel, increasingly more so. She had turned out to be quite the dark horse. At last, the train rattled into St Pancras Station, and they got off to walk to the tube station. It seemed almost part of their routine now, to head for the Northern Line and down to Waterloo, Ronnie wondered if she'd jump off the train again. As he was thinking this, she took him by the hand and squeezed it. "'Time for a change of subject, I think,' she said. "'You know where Paul works?' "'The Computer Data centre. "'Yes. It's somewhere around here. "'I think you have to go to Russell Square Station. "'Somewhere near there? "'It's all close to the British Museum or something. "'Underneath it, I mean.' "'Has he got a name?' Something to do with a database? Something-something database? Well, it would be a database, I suppose. A database that links a lot of other databases. Something-linking database. They reached the southbound platform and caught their train, arriving at the NFT in plenty of time to collect their tickets. It was Ronnie's turn to pay. They had time to sit in the bar, and had a drink and a packet of crisps, and then went in to see the film. Tender Mercies was enjoyable if heavy-going in places, and afterwards they decided not to walk back to St Pancras because it was raining, so they caught the tube again and sat together, feeling close to each other once more, not saying very much. Ronnie felt content. Autumn Fall JT3 was over, according to Dave Cooper. Mel seemed like she might be the one, or a one at least and the world wasn't going to end in a nuclear holocaust. Maybe it would be worth finishing the album after all. They caught the train, and then in the centre of town caught the bus back to Ronnie's. There were no spoken arrangements, but it was clear she was going home with him. This was very exciting. Mel said nothing about the LPs still strewn all over the living room floor, and led him straight to the bedroom. He was glad he'd recently changed his sheets. Afterwards, they were hungry because they'd barely eaten anything, so Ronnie fixed some cheese on toast, and they sat up watching a late movie on Channel 4. Mel went to the bedroom to fetch the quilt, and they sat underneath it, half-dressed, watching a film they'd missed the start of, and fell asleep in front of the TV, skin to skin. She was gone in the morning when he woke.